We're going to read from Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. And a leper came to him, Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, He, Jesus, stretched out His hand and touched Him and said to Him, I do will. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left Him and He was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged Him and sent Him away at once and said to Him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest. Offer for yourself cleansing the cleansing that Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I begin, let's just pray. My heart is in anguish right now for Your people. Those who have been called and those who have yet to be called. I long to shepherd them well. To bring the Word. To pull them out of fear. And there's so many things weighing on my heart for every single one of them. I pray, God, that You would just reveal to us Christ and His victory, His power over sin, over every plague, over the grave, over death. And we would walk away from here, those brothers and sisters at home right now, so much of our church unable to actually church, unable to gather. Our hearts long to be together. My heart weeps for those who are going to go hungry, for those who are in despair, for those who are going to lose their jobs, for those who aren't going to find spiritual hope in Christ because... The church is unable to gather as a whole body. Bless us, God, now by Your Word to give us confidence in Your amazing work. Amen. I know I'm not supposed to touch my face right now. How's everybody doing today, huh? Something new going on in our lives? This is a little... Crazy, so much uncertainty concerning what we're supposed to be doing. Who are we supposed to listen to? Different voices giving us different instructions and different priorities. Everyone telling us what the right thing to do is right now. And oftentimes they contradict one another. What are we to do? We need God's wisdom. We need confidence in what God is doing right now. It's easy to say, as I hear so many good Christians saying, God is in control. We have nothing to fear. 
But how we act really reveals how much we believe that. I've seen some of the most godly people I know say that. In the one hand, yes, God is in control. We have no reason to be afraid right now. And then the very next breath they use to speak with fear in their eyes and panic in their proposals. I've prayed so much this last week. I've been talking to as many people as I can, reading so much, wrestling, researching this, speaking with as many Mayo employees among us as I can, trying to figure out what is the best way for us to move forward as a body, as a family. And after all that wrestle, my concern right now is not so much the coronavirus, but our legalistic responses to it. So many of us are proclaiming what the loving thing to do is right now, and then we look down at others for not doing the thing that we expect them to do. This just hasn't been sitting right in my heart. I feel like of all the responses that we've been called to, we're missing one very important response. Fear and legalism still labeled as love is still fear and legalism. But I think Christ gives us a much better way. Recently I was watching a film production, a couple, actually, a couple different film productions of the life of Jesus and his disciples. And, and in both of these films, this fantastic scene displaying this text from Mark chapter one, Jesus healing the leper. It's incredible. And they do a great job of depicting the fear in that moment. A leper just comes walking up to the crowd in desperation saying, Jesus, help me. You can do this. And everyone's going, no no way is Jesus walking up to that guy. The loving thing to do would for us all to walk away. And instead he turns and walks right towards him. Everyone's freaking out, going bonkers. He's going to infect us all. <clears throat> they weren't completely off. The law of Moses did say, did require what we today are calling social distancing for anyone who fell ill with leprosy. It was highly contagious. If you thought you might have leprosy, your responsibility was to go to the priest and have that priest inspect you and say, declare whether you were clean or unclean. If you were unclean, the consequence was to be banished outside the camp. You had to live outside the city, quarantined from the rest of society. If for some odd reason you felt the need to go into town, You had to be extremely careful to stay away from people and let them know that you were very sick. You cover your mouth and say, unclean, unclean. And then someone else would hear you and they go, unclean, he's unclean. And the crowd would part much more than six feet and the person could walk through without risking getting anyone else sick. And in that world, there was a loving thing to do. A disease like that could literally destroy a nation. But that law was about so much more than just cultural sanitation and hygiene. Leprosy and isolation are symbolic for sin not being allowed in the presence of God. Those who are in sin must be exiled from God 
because sin cannot be allowed near him. He will consume all who are in sin. So these laws weren't meant to shame people, but to put on a display for everyone that all of us are leprous sinners, banished from God's presence. And anyone who gets to draw near to God does so only by His mercy. These laws also came with future promises, however, that God one day was going to make a way for those with not just skin leprosy, not just coronavirus, but with the leprosy of the heart of sin, that they could be made clean and walk with Him forever in health and prosperity. Unfortunately, over many years, this, these two ideas of leprosy and sin became conflated. And people started to see that, to understand that lepers must be the greater sinner. They, there's, the reason that they must have this disease is because they've committed some personal sin. And since they're terrible sinners, as evidenced by their leprosy, since my skin's clean, I must be much more righteous than they are. I am the one who obviously loves God more and I love other people more by warning you to stay away from those people. And clearly they don't love God and if they keep showing their faces in public, they don't love others either. It's starting to feel a little similar, familiar to me right now. But Jesus came to put an end to that terrible legalistic, self-righteous, fearful application of the law. He came to empower us to not be afraid of any plague ever again. As I watch the news right now and I see how dear friends and complete strangers are reacting on social media, I can't help but think of what Christ has done to heal this leper. What, How lepers were treated in Israel there was some good, some good to those laws to keep people safe, to show us our need for salvation. And there are some good, there is some good to our current guidelines and reactions to this virus going around. Yet we want to protect vulnerable people. By all means, do everything we can to protect them, maintain healthy behaviors and boundaries. But much of the response so far to this outbreak from individuals like us to the highest government authorities in the world is all driven by uncertainty and fear. We just don't know anything about this right now. We don't have enough data to to guide us to make a confident decision. And when we try to make decisions with such fear of unknown, It squeezes out our internal legalist. Our natural reaction to fear and uncertainty is to grasp for control, even if that control might cause more harm in the long run. And then we respond in judgment when other people don't do it the way we think we should. I bet the reaction to many people watching Jesus try to heal that leper was, what, is, what an unloving thing to do. But in healing the leper, Jesus shows us that there are much greater factors at play when a plague strikes fear in everyone's hearts. So today, instead of spending all our time in this text in Mark chapter 1, 
I want to, again, as we've done many times before, scan the entire Bible as quickly as we can and try to understand how plagues fit in to the great redemptive plan of God. Where do they come from? How do they begin? Who is responsible for them? How is God involved and what's He doing to rescue us from plagues? I want us to embrace with confidence the reality that Christ has defeated every plague and you will too in the resurrection. Christ has defeated every plague and you will too in the resurrection. We have nothing to fear. We don't need to fear a virus. We don't need to fear our neighbors. We don't need to fear the collapse of the economy or what other people think of us for the choices we make. We must fear God who has conquered the grave, promised eternal life, and sent us to proclaim that hope to the world. So our outline is just two parts today. Old Testament, New Testament. We'll be here for the next four days. <laughs> First, we'll just scan the Old Testament in a few select texts from, and to, to determine the plague's origin. Where has it all come from? What, why are there plagues in this world? And then look at the New Testament and find the plague's cure. What confidence do we have to face today's plagues on this side of the cross? So let's start in the very beginning, back in Genesis. You might want to try to flip along with me throughout this scan through the Bible or just have a pen ready to write down and come back to these texts later. We're starting in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 31. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. What does this tell us? Very good speaks of everything right about the world. Everything fits morally, physically, relationally. Everything is rightly ordered. And so, related to our topic for now... There are no plagues. What a beautiful world. And God gives a warning in the next chapter, however, in Genesis 2, verse 17, that if these first humans disobey God in any way, particularly eating of that tree, they will surely die. What does it mean for them to die? I bet they had no idea. doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But God cursing Adam in the next chapter in Genesis 3, 17 and 19 gives a little more detail. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Life is going to be really painful and inevitably result in physical death. This is the source of every plague. Adam's rebellion against God. Genesis 3 is the source, the origin of every virus. Before sin, there were no viruses that would plague us like this. After sin, boom, plagues cursing the earth. Everyone will die. Maybe not from the coronavirus, but everyone is going to fall to this plague. But infectious diseases are more than just a byproduct of Adam's sin. They're often the consequence of someone's very personal sin. 
We see this pattern throughout the Old Testament. Plagues are sent as a consequence for ongoing physical behavior. Genesis 12:17. Just a few chapters later, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. That's intense. He's about to commit adultery with someone else's wife. And he got a plague for it, even though he was lied to and the whole family. This is a big deal. Genesis, or Exodus 7 through 11. Remember the great ten plagues on Egypt. God sent ten plagues to strike Egypt down for Pharaoh and the people thinking that they are gods and treating horribly God's people. God sent the plagues to this pagan nation. But Israel is not immune from the plague of sin either. In the same book, just after, right after, only days after this dramatic rescue from Egypt, they went through the Red Sea with massive walls of water on their side, seeing signs and wonders, watching the mountain quake as God gives the law. While that's happening, they're worshiping a golden calf. And they lie about it. It just jumped out of the fire. Imagine that. And so Exodus 32, verse 35 says, God struck them with a plague as punishment for their sin of idolatry. The consequences are the same when Korah gathers a bunch of people to rebel against Moses' authority in Numbers chapter 16. Some of the people there, remember, they're swallowed up by the ground. And those who managed to get back from the ledge, struck with a plague. And they're just dying off left and right until Moses quickly offers a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice to please God, satisfy his wrath, and the plague ended. You would think they learned their lesson, but only nine chapters later, just down the wilderness road, the Israelites begin committing adultery with foreign women. And so what does God do to punish them? Strikes them with another plague. Sin is ugly, my friends. It is a far worse curse than any virus we might get. Its consequences are gruesome. So Moses, with a new generation, all the old people died off. The, The previous generation, let me be careful to say that, the previous generation, for their sin, struck with a plague, died off. And he's starting with the new generation. And he says in Deuteronomy 28, we're about to go into the promised land. And let me warn you, you are no different from them. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, the Lord will make a pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with a wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat, and with drought, and with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. This is heavy, heartbreaking. The Old Covenant law laid out the consequences, the punishments for disobeying God. And it very specifically said that a terribly contagious disease is God's judgment on His covenant people. Now let me stop and offer a breath of fresh air. Diesel smelling air. Not, I do not want to suggest that every sickness is the result 
of some specific disobedience of your own sin. That was the trap that the Pharisees fell into, right? That they became legalistic and thought the leper deserves it because he's a sinner. They missed that sometimes someone else's sin can cause suffering in your life. Remember David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15 says, The Lord afflicted the child. The word for afflicted is plagued. The child became sick and died because of David's sin. And we see later in his life, 1 Chronicles 21, David's sin again affects people. The whole nation, when he counts how great his army is, so we can see how powerful he is, and God says, I'm going to punish you by sending a plague among your people. A leader's sin can cause great suffering, whether it's in his own home or in his nation. How many innocent children have we killed because of our own sinful policies and decisions? Sometimes though, like in the case of Job, a plague makes absolutely no sense at all. His friends wanted to connect his sickness, his death, his loss with his own sin. And he tried, he tried to understand, but he couldn't make any sense of it. Psalm 38 shows us again another righteous man suffering with a plague that he doesn't understand. And like Job, he says in verse 11, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest kin stand far off. People are afraid to come near Him. No matter the circumstance of any of these, whether it's because of your own sin, because of someone else's sin, or for some unknown reason, what we need to understand is that the Bible, every single time, every single time, attributes the source of the plague to God's own hand. It's God who sent the plague. It's God who brought the punishment and only God can remove it. Psalm 39 writes, Remove your stroke from me. Again, stroke, plague. Remove your plague from me. I am spent, God, by the hostility from your hand. How many of us are just tired of this already and it's only been like two weeks for us? God, remove it. It doesn't make sense. Please, take it away. We don't know what the right thing to do is. We're scared. Why would God do this? How could a good God send a plague into the world? One answer, as we've seen already, is that this is the natural consequence for Adam's sin. It was all introduced at the beginning and we have only perpetuated it with our own sin. But it's also an opportunity to remind us of our fragility, the curse of sin and our need for redemption, that this world is not our home, that we have a greater inheritance. Everyone born from Adam, that is, everyone, will die because of Adam's rebellion and our own sin. If you watch the statistics right now of this spreading virus, it's... Quite an incredibly sobering thought. I saw this morning, I had to double check the numbers. 
13,000 people have died around the world over the last few months. Hundreds of people every single day are passing into eternity, standing before the throne of God to give an account for their lives. Just taken by this virus. And so if you're still alive today, God is using this time to give you an opportunity to seek His face. Run to Him. Flee to Him. Plagues are designed by God to lead us to repentance. Not necessarily from a specific sin, maybe, but just from anything that we put our hope in and running to Him alone. So Jesus spoke of a blind man in John 9 who was born blind, he says, just so God could display His power in this man's life. It wasn't his sin or his parents' sin that caused his blindness. It was God who afflicted him with this blindness when he was born so that just at the right moment, he could make himself known in a special way. Again, in Luke 13, Jesus says, those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? You think they deserve that because of their sin? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Calamity is designed by God to make us flee ourselves and run to Him. And so before moving on to just the good news, the really exciting part, I want to take a moment, totally out of the ordinary in my preaching, and stop in the middle of our sermon and pray. Take a moment to confess if you need to, Our world has been struck with a significant calamity. And we don't know if it's the result of one person's sin or or if this is just God calling us to seek Him. So let's bow our heads for just a minute. And if you have a personal sin you want to confess, just do that silently. If you're at home, do that with the person sitting next to you. And repent on behalf of our church, on behalf of our nation and world leaders and beg God to remove this stroke from us. God, we see from this text that the first, the primary response, the immediate thing we ought to do when this kind of thing strikes us is to get on our knees And seek your face. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. To not be anxious about anything, but in everything, to present our requests to God. You alone can deliver us from this fear, from this plague, from the economic downturn, from losing our jobs. Whatever it is, God, we beg you, Already we can't handle the hostility from Your hand. We ask that You would remove it from us. We ask that You would lead our governors and our mayors and our presidents and kings and prime ministers and whatever we have all over the world that they would lead us first in repentance. Seek faith, Your face and find healing only in Your promises. Forgive us for our own fears and for our own judgment on others. 
Give us hope now, God. Show us Christ. Amen. It would be a terrible place to end on that note. It's not terribly good news. We keep telling each other, God is in control. That's not incredibly good news. Unless you know that He's in control for your good. What is He doing to one day remove this plague of sin and its plague of consequences? Who will redeem us, restore us, rescue us from these bodies of death? The Old Testament itself didn't even leave us without hope. Psalm 91 that we read to start off with said, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague can come near your tents. So, trust in God with all your heart, soul, and strength and you will never get sick. Still not good news. Terrible news, because none of us can do that. How is God going to accomplish this for us? Well, there is one who loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, and strength. And no plague could come near him. And he's going to come and suffer on our behalf. Isaiah 53 says, he became like a leper for his people. This is what he says. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken plagued for the transgression of my people. Someone who doesn't deserve the plague, someone who the plague cannot touch, is going to take the plague willingly upon himself on our behalf. Who is that man? Jesus. We see that in our text from Mark today. Mark Chapter 1, that Jesus is the one from Psalm 91 that no plague can come near. As the sinless one, perfectly obedient to the Father. With the one with all authority over creation, over demons, over sickness itself. Sickness cannot touch Him. He has the power to banish sickness. Just as He did with the leper. Which is incredible. Uh, Just as Leviticus 13 and 14 describe, the law throughout all of history has described that uncleanness always makes other things unclean. It's one directional. Nothing clean makes anything clean. It always becomes unclean when they touch. Leprosy could only be healed by death. Always made others sick. That's why people ran in fear. Just like sin, it was permanent until death. But not for Jesus. What's going on here? He walks right up to the man and for the first time in history, cleanness passed out of his hands and made that leper clean like Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings 5. His skin was made smooth like a baby. He became a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come, Paul says. Jesus is reversing the effects of sin and the fall. The curse is being reversed, undone in Christ. And He set this reversal work permanently in motion on the cross. Just as Isaiah foretold, when He takes the plague of sin upon Himself. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
God struck down His own perfect, righteous, holy Son with a deathly plague as the consequence for our sin so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. The judgment removed forever. We deserve it. He didn't. The plague should rightly consume us and yet it took Him. On the cross, we exchanged places. He became a leper cast outside the city to die. Banished from the fellowship with God. But not even the plague could keep Him down. Three days later, He burst out of that tomb proclaiming that He has victory over even every plague, victory over death. And all who trust in Him will rise like He did, made new. The old passed away, unable to never be touched by a plague again. This is what inspired the apostles to go out in the book of Acts and start healing and proclaiming the resurrection. Yes, they healed a bunch of people, but that wasn't to give us hope that if you believe in Jesus, you'll be healed too. It was to give them authority to proclaim this message, to say, your hope is not in this world. We have confidence in a resurrection body to come. Our hope is not healing now, but being raised in the next life. This is why throughout church history, Christians have been eager to run into the face of plagues and serve. They don't fear death. In Christ, death has no hold on us. Sure, you might get plagued. You might get sick. You might die. But even if you die, you are just that much closer to the most incredible event in the history of the world. All the righteous in Christ rising from the dead to live forever with Him. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, I want that now. And speaking of this confidence in the resurrection, Paul quotes Hosea in 1 Corinthians 15 saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If you look back at that Hosea text, though, in chapter 13, verse 14, quite literally it says, O death, where are your plagues? No plague has the power over the one who puts his faith in the hands of King Jesus. No virus has ultimate power over the believer. Coronavirus should not strike fear into our hearts. It should strike, lead us to fear God. In fact, plagues are opportunities for us to show our hope that Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome every sin. Over, he's overcome death and every plague by His own death and resurrection. And now He reigns in us so that we can go into this world and proclaim hope, confidence that one day we too will rise. How do we live with that confidence? This is where it gets tricky. Some of us, a few of us, were able to come and set up a production here today to broadcast to the majority who are at home. Who made the right decision? What are we, who are we supposed to obey? Should we lock ourselves in our home? There's so many difficult choices to make. We want to balance both wise care for others 
not make it worse, and display bold confidence in this resurrection. How do we respond to this unique moment in history? First, realize it's not a unique moment in history. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see that God is going to bring plagues. He's going to send His angels to bring plagues upon the world to give everybody another opportunity to repent. This is the story of church history until Jesus returns and brings us His new creation. Plagues have littered history. And every one of us should make us aware that the death rate for sin is still 100%. Every plague comes from the hand of God, and so our first response should be repentance. Cry out, God, I don't know why, like Job, I don't know why this is here, but I'm seeking answers from you. I trust that you got something good in it. Use this opportunity to see God's hand in it and trust Him. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ that one day you will rise with Him. And with your eyes focused there, God's sovereignty and the resurrection, now you can engage the world without fear of judgment, whether from God or from others, in a time of fear and panic. So let me just give you three quick practical ways that you can love your neighbor right now. First, this will be the most practical sermon application you have ever gotten in your life. Wash your hands! Wash your hands. I, unfortunately, in all the research I've done, one of the most common things I've found is people don't know how to wash their hands. Doctors are going, I wish people could learn how to wash their hands. It would just really help us out here. So, 20 seconds, soap and water, as warm a water as you can would be helpful. 20 seconds, that's like, oh, what's the song? Happy birthday, two times. Or as Justin likes to say, Answer the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. That should get you about there. And if you're sick with anything, stay home. If you're around vulnerable people, stay home. God bless you all at home for trying to love your neighbor well. Basic hygiene and health, taking care of your body, eating well, exercising, all these things, are the second best way you can love your neighbor right now. The first is, tell them about the resurrection. Second, stay off social media and the news. They're only spreading fear. Even the most reputable organizations, the government and CDC, they're all throwing out just uninterpreted data for us. And it's just leading to fear. Nobody knows what the data really says. Everything's driven by fear of the what-if Worst case scenario right now. Not what's actually happening. I keep asking people who work at Mayo, how many coronavirus patients do you have that are you serving right now? None. Oh, okay. Well, that kind of helps me understand the data a little bit better. It could be coming. We don't know. So, again, wash your hands. Until then, stay off of social media and the news. I'm not giving a new rule here, but something to consider. How much time have you been in the Word compared to how much time you've been reading the news? Fill your mind with confidence in God's sovereignty and Christ's victory over death. 
Finally, let's show the world something other than fear. Hopeful engagement in a fearful world. Find ways to serve your neighbor. Love for neighbor right now can look a thousand different ways. Maybe staying home is one good way. Maybe not. But don't judge others as being faithless for not being here or being rebellious by being here simply because they made a different decision. Trust God's Spirit to work in His people. Offer child care for someone who has to go to work and their kids are home from school. Send notes, letters, cards of encouragement to one another. Contact a a nursing home. They are literally quarantined. So figure out how to FaceTime with them or send them a card. Offer to go shopping for those who really can't leave their homes. Shop at local stores that are about to go out of business. Donate blood. Most powerfully of all, proclaim your confidence in Christ by finding some way to connect with other believers to sing, pray, and be in the Word together. Satan is delighting right now in this rampant fear. He thinks that he's disrupting God's redemptive work. He thinks he's dividing the church and making our witness less effective. But what more powerful proclamation of hope can we make right now than finding ways to display, proclaim our hope in Christ by gathering, even if it's just with one other person, singing together, praying, modeling repentance and faith in the resurrection. Proclaim the Word with boldness. Serve your neighbors in need. And show the world that we do not fear flags, or death. We fear God and hope in Christ. Let's pray. God, we need You to reveal Yourself to us. We need You to break us, to soften our hearts, that we wouldn't fear anything but You, and we would stop judging one another. Instead, we would start loving and serving and proclaiming our hope. God, I pray I pray that You would remove this stroke from the United States, from Minnesota, from Olmstead County, from Rochester, from the world. But I pray even more that You would lead us to lead many others to Christ. That this would be the beginning of the greatest revival in our generation. That we would see many more come to faith in Jesus as a result of Your right hand bringing this season of difficulty into our lives. May we look for opportunities to proclaim this hope and to invite others to join us in our Savior's joy. Amen.